everybody and welcome to Coach's Corner. I'm really excited about today's episode because I have a favorite author of mine here today to speak to you about flow and the art of the impossible. His name is Stephen Kotler. I'll tell you more about him in a moment. You may have heard of him. Before we dive in, just two quick announcements. We are about to enroll for our Coaching Training Institute. I have joined forces with my husband, Alexi Panos, and Preston Smiles to create an epic coaching institute to really train masterful coaches. This first round is open for people who already are coaches or have some coaching experience. Maybe you are an executive coach and you want to move into life coaching. We're going to be doing more of these, but this first group is to train our future faculty of the program. So it's an incredible opportunity to get in with us, to be mentored by us. It's the only group that will be personally mentored by us as well. If you want to get on the list for that and be sent the application ASAP, go to christinehasler.com slash coach training. Second announcement is our inner child workshop is open for enrollment. It's happening March 19th through 21st. If you can't join live, that's okay. This is Oh, one of the most powerful workshops we facilitate. So much happens in just under three days. It is really important work, especially if you're a listener to this show. And it doesn't matter if you don't remember your childhood or you have trouble connecting to your inner child. In fact, that's what we help you do. And it's not about processing your trauma and going back into the past. It's really about learning how to really cherish that connection between you and that little one and become that healthy parent to yourself. You can go to christinehasler.com slash inner child to learn more about that. It's not an expensive workshop and we do have scholarships available. So don't let money be an obstacle. Email jill at christinehasler.com. If you're really struggling, there's no need for shame. We're happy to help. All right. So let's talk about my guest today, Stephen Kotler. He is an author, an award-winning journalist, and the founder and executive director of the Flow Research Collective. Have you ever heard of like being in the flow and getting in the flow state? That's Stephen. He's written 12 books, including the national bestsellers, The Future is Faster Than You Think, The Rise of Superman, Stealing Fire, Abundance, and Bold. Most recently, he released The Art of the Impossible, which we'll talk about today. So Stephen is a peak performance expert on a science-based approach to unleash our full potential and succeed against all odds. And I really wanted to have him on because we're living in a time where it may be easy to give up. And Stephen's going to teach us how to exceed our limitations. All right. And now on to my interview with Stephen Kotler. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Christine, it's good to be with you. We're going to talk a lot about flow state. I talked in the introduction about it. So I'd love to start this conversation with you defining what a flow state is. Great place to start. Flow, and this is a scientific definition. People always ask me, what's your definition of flow? I don't have a definition of flow. Science has a definition of flow. And uh, defined as an optimal state of consciousness where we feel our best and perform our best. But that doesn't get us very far. Um, so more specifically, flow refers to any of those moments of rapt attention and total absorption. We get so focused on the task at hand, so focused on what we're doing that everything else just seems to disappear. Action and awareness are going to start to merge. Uh, time is going to dilate, which is a very fancy way of saying it passes strangely. So occasionally it'll slow down. You'll get a freeze frame effect. Probably familiar to anybody who's been in a car crash. Or more frequently, it speeds up and five hours go by in like five minutes. And throughout all aspects of performance, both mental and physical, go through the roof. Mm. I think I experienced that. Um, well, I used to experience it when I tennis was my sport, and I definitely would experience it somewhere there. But I definitely experience when I'm coaching people. Like I can do an event and be coaching people for three, four hours, and it feels like five minutes. And I'm totally there. I'm totally present. My mind isn't wandering. Time flies by. I guess that would be a flow state, yes? That's totally a flow state. One thing that's worth pointing out, two things that are worth pointing out here at the start of the conversation. One, flow is universal in humans. It's actually universal in most mammals, maybe all mammals at this point. Um, we don't quite know. Uh, but anybody listening to this can get into flow. It shows up in anyone, anywhere, provided certain initial conditions are met. First thing to know. Second thing to know, this is equally important, is 
so when psychologists define flow, they talk about six core characteristics. There are six things that happen. And when all six show up, you can call it a flow state. And we, I mentioned them as we went along, complete concentration on the task at hand, the merger of action and awareness, the sense of self gets very quiet, sort of disappears. Time dilates, passes strangely. There's because performance goes up so high, there's a feeling of control. Like you can control things you normally can't control. So this could be me as a writer with a, you know, a faculty with language that I don't normally have kind of thing. This could be an athlete, you know, basketball player. They talk about the basket looks like it's, you know, 10 feet wide when they're in the zone um, that could, that could show up. And finally, the experience is autotelic, which is a really fancy way of saying it is a joyous, ecstatic, amazing, wonderful. Autotelic means an end in itself. And it refers to the fact flow is everybody's favorite experience. When we go out and you, you ask humans to rate what is your favorite experience, flow tops every list. It, it comes in above sex. It comes in above everything as our favorite experience on the planet. Autotelic is a fancy way of saying addictive. Flow is the most addictive state on earth. We don't like that word because it's got a lot of negative connotations, but flow is a, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, the godfather of flow psychology, always said flow is addictive, but unlike other addictive addictions, which lead sort of backwards into negative experiences, flow is an addiction that leads forward into a more positive future. Mm. Do you think there's anyone listening who hasn't ever experienced a flow state? Okay. So this is the second thing I was going to say. All that was by way of being able to say what I was about to say. Flow is a spectrum of experiences, not just a singular experience. What I mean by that is it's like an emotion, right? Anger. You can be a little irked, or homicidally murderous, and it's the same emotion. Flow is the same thing. You can have a state of micro flow. This is where those six characteristics may show up, but they're like dialed down to one or two. So this is you go to work, you sit down to write that quickie email to your boss, and you get really sucked in, and an hour goes by, and you don't you don't even notice, and, and the email gets really exquisite and detailed and fantastic writing and communicating and whatnot. And maybe your sense of self didn't disappear completely. The bodily awareness was diminished. And when you sort of pop back into consciousness, you realize you have to run to the bathroom. Like, oh my God, I eat, right? That happens to all of us. That's micro flow. And the research shows, and this is the answer to your question, that most of us spend about 5% of our work lives in micro flow, often without noticing it. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, this is macro flow. This is when all those characteristics show up at once. And this is just sort of as hard to diagnose because most people for, in fact, until the 1950s, we thought this was a quote unquote mystical experience, meaning it was common only to spiritual and religious people. And it was only Abraham Maslow was studying high achievers. And he had this huge study group of high achievers. And he found that all of them used flow um, to amplify uh, the work they did in the world. And everybody in his study group was an atheist. So suddenly mystical experiences, spiritual experiences, religious experiences were out and Maslow renamed them peak experiences. And then Mihai Csikszentmihalyi came along and he started calling them flow states because, and it's worth kind of making this final point and they'll shut up. I apologize. <laughs> no, um, please. This is, this is the whole point to hear you talk. Is sort of, he's the godfather of flow psychology. He was the head of the University of Chicago psychology department for a very long time. Then he moved to Drucker. He retired last year. Amazing, amazing, amazing mind, amazing person, amazing thinker. And he conducted a giant global study on, uh, on flow, some of the earliest work uh, done on, on the actual state in the 70s. He went around the world talking to people about peak performance. Tell me about the times in your life when you felt your best and you performed your best. Everybody said the same thing. They said, well, when I'm at my best, I'm in this state of consciousness, this altered state where every decision, every action seems to flow seamlessly, perfectly, effortlessly from the last. So that gives us sort of a practical look at what flow really does. It is as close to high speed, near perfect decision making as we can get. One thing to emphasize here, near perfect, not perfect. The extreme skier Scott, Scott Schmidt used to make a point about this. He used to say, you know, flow makes me feel like Superman up until the moment I'm not. So you can make errors in flow and it's harder to recognize those things. Um, and the state, you know, there's certain things that the state is terrible for. Never go shopping in a flow state because pattern recognition is all jacked up and you'll buy everything <laughs> and you'll come home. Trust me. I learned this the hard way. I think way I've with done furniture. that. <laughs> yeah, I've done it. I, I did it with furniture once and I like that. It got delivered. And I was like, what the hell was I possibly thinking? Mm. What was wrong with me? 
So yeah, I learned that lesson the hard way myself. Mm. Okay. I have so many questions about flow state and, and including how do we get into it? But before we get there, I'd love just to give a little context into how you became the expert on flow state because you have quite a unique story. So there's two parts to it and I'll try to do part one very quickly because I know you're sort of interested in part two. I'm interested in both. I started out as a journalist and I became a journalist in the 1990s and journalism is this cool profession where you get to exploit your curiosity. And I was deeply curious about a couple of things, human biology and human psychology and human neuroscience, predominantly neuroscience, because I was fascinated with how do people work. And simultaneously, I was obsessed with action sports, surfing, skiing, rock climbing, snowboarding, the like. The 1990s was the birth of action sports. It was when the gravity games, the X games, we were just starting to get going. And there was a lot of work if you could, if you were, if you knew how to write and surf or rock climb and surf or whatever. And I couldn't do any of those things very well, but I was fascinated by these sports and I lied to my editors and I basically spent a decade chasing professional athletes around mountains and across oceans. And the 90s is considered the great era of impossible in action sports. More never been done before in history. We never, stuff that we never thought was possible was just done over and over and over again. I won't linger on action sports because I know most people don't care. But one example, surfing is a thousand year old sport. And from 400 AD, when we invent the first surfboard to 1996, the biggest wave anybody's ever managed to surf is 25 feet. There are physics papers written about how it's impossible for surfers to paddle into waves that are over 25 feet tall. And yet, Less than a decade later, surfers were pulling into waves that were 100 feet tall. And that's nearly exponential growth and ultimate human performance. It didn't make any sense. And it wasn't just surfing. It was skiing and snowboarding and rock climbing and so forth. But here's the whole point. Forget the fact that these athletes were doing the impossible. That was going on. But it was these athletes. And I was living with a lot of these people in Squaw Valley. I knew them. They were friends of mine. And the folks I knew... This was the early 1990s. Action sports were deep subculture. This is like punk rock, rowdy, irreverent, and really messed up. And the people I knew who were involved in action sports, most of them came from broken homes and bad childhoods. They had very little money. They didn't have a ton of education. There was a ton of drug use. There was a ton of alcohol abuse. And there was a lot of risky behavior. And as a general rule, when you put that stuff together in a group of people, you get death and early uh, and jail time, basically much more than you get a group of people reinventing what is possible for our species on a regular basis. So I wanted to understand how the hell this was happening. That was where all this started for me. And I wasn't just interested in action sports. So I started taking this question of what does it take to do the impossible into every other domain imaginable? I took it into technology and I spent 25 years studying those points in time when science fiction ideas like bionics or robotics, et cetera, et cetera, became science fact technology. I took it into business and looked at business executives like Elon Musk and Richard Branson, people who have built impossible business empires in record time. I took it into altruism and public service and looked at small teams, individuals going after impossible global challenges like energy shortages, water scarcity, healthcare crises and whatnot. And this is the work I was doing. And then I got very, very sick, which is the second part of the story. So before I ever got to an answer to what the hell was going on, I got Lyme disease. And I spent about three years in bed. And for those of you who don't know what Lyme is sort of like, it's like the worst flu you've ever had crossed with paranoid schizophrenia. Couldn't walk, couldn't move, couldn't think, couldn't work, lost my short-term memory, lost my long-term memory, was hallucinating, etc. I was destroyed. I was functional 10 minutes a day and I was going to end my life because I was, I was worthless. There was nothing else I was going to uh, be able to do. The doctors pulled me off medicines because my stomach lining started bleeding out in reaction to the meds. And they didn't know if I was ever going to get better. And I was, I was done. And so I was going to end my life. And I was living in Los Angeles at the time, by the way. And in the middle of this very dark period, a friend of mine shows up at my doorstep. And uh, she demands that I go surfing with her. And it was a it was absurd. It was a ridiculous request. I hadn't, first of all, I hadn't surfed in a, in a long time. So you know, I couldn't walk across my room, let alone go surfing. And my friend, good, great friend that she is, wouldn't leave my house, wouldn't leave my house, just would kept badgering me and kept badgering me and kept badgering me. And finally, after hours, just like anything to get this woman to shut up, I was like, fine, let's go surfing. I can always kill myself tomorrow. Seriously. Like what's the worst that can happen? 
right? Like anything. And it was her and a neighbor and they'd carry me to the car and they, she drove me to the lineup and her and a friend had to actually carry me out to the waves. Um, like uh, with their, my arms around their shoulders, they gave me a board the size of a Cadillac and we went to Sunset Beach, which if you know anything about surfing in LA, you know, it's the wimpiest beginner wave in the entire universe, <laughs> right? And the tide was out. So you could walk out there and it was summer and it was warm. And I sat down on the board and I was out there for maybe 30 seconds and a wave came and muscle memory took over or I don't know what happened, but I spun the board around and I think I used all the energy I had in the entire universe to paddle twice and pop to my feet. And I popped up into a dimension I did not know existed. I suddenly time slowed to an absolute crawl. I felt like I had panoramic vision, like I could see out of the back of my head. And I felt like I was sort of drifting in and out of my body, like I was having a little bit of an out-of-body experience. And the weirdest part of the whole thing was I felt great. I mean, my brain was clear. I felt good. My body felt good. The pain was gone. It was astounding. And it was so good. I caught four more waves that day. And after those waves, I was done. I was disassembled. They drove me home. They poured me into bed. People had to bring me meals for the next like 14 days because I literally couldn't get out of bed and walk 30 feet to my kitchen to make a meal. And on the 15th day, which is the day I could walk again, this experience I'd had in the waves was so powerful and it was so compelling because I had been pain free and I had felt great. And I caught a ride back to the ocean with a neighbor and I did it again. And over the course of about six to eight months, when the only thing I was doing differently in my life was surfing and having these incredibly powerful experiences out in the waves, I went from 10% functional up to 80% functional. And so first question, I'm a science guy. I'm a hardcore rational materialist. And, you know, suddenly surfing is a cure for chronic autoimmune conditions. Like what the hell is going on with that? And worse, Lyme is only really fatal if it can get, if it gets into your brain. And because I was a rational materialist, because I was a science guy, I was having quasi mystical experiences out in the waves. I didn't know what was going on. I thought the disease had gotten into my brain. And even though I was feeling better, I thought the reason I was feeling better is because the disease was eating away at certain things in my brain. And that's why I was having these mystical experiences out in the waves. So I lit out on a giant quest to figure out what the hell is wrong with me. What I quickly figured out is, oh, these altered states have names. We call them flow states. And I got very lucky is one, I, I spoke neuroscience at that point, and there have been really recent work, some of them done by Herb Benson at Harvard, some of them done elsewhere that talked about what happens when we move into flow and how it impacts our nervous system, our immune system. And as we move into flow, there's sort of a global release of, of nitric oxide. It's a gas signaling molecule. It's in every cell in our body. And when it gets pushed into our system, it flushes stress hormones out of our system. As anybody with an autoimmune condition knows, Lyme, like every other autoimmune condition, is a nervous system gone haywire. And one of the reasons these diseases persist, chronic Lyme, lupus, et cetera, et cetera, is because our body is a homeostatic organism, but it can only return back to nor normal if it knows where the hell normal is. And the problem with autoimmune conditions is the body has no idea where normal is because it's been so erratic all over the place for so long. If you can get flush the stress hormones out of your system, you actually give the body a chance to reset and calm down. Even better, there are five very potent neurochemicals that un underpin the appearance of flow. And they do a lot of different performance-enhancing functions in the brain and the body, but they also boost the immune system. And so Herb Benson at Harvard, who sort of decoded the neurobiology of this, has said he thinks this is the mechanism underneath all so-called cases of spontaneous healing. I think he's massively overstating the case, but there is a bunch of neural immunology work that has happened since that is pointing more in that direction rather than less. The other thing that I very quickly figured out is, hey, wait a minute, the same state of consciousness that had helped me go from zero back up to normal or subpar back up to normal was it had showed up in every one of my interviews or research with the athletes with the scientists, with the technology, every time the impossible became possible, there were descriptions of flow in my research. And I realized that the same state that helped me go from subpar back to normal was helping normal people go up to Superman. And that's sort of where all this started for me. So long story, and I apologize, but uh, that 
that's sort of where it began. Oh, please don't apologize. It was so inspiring. And there's so many teachable moments in that story. So thank you so much for sharing that. And I, I have heard so many stories of people healing themselves and it never not touches my heart. It never not moves me because it just connects me to the potential we have as, as human beings, or I even like to say spiritual beings having a human experience. So thank you. So for people listening, maybe especially if you're suffering from a autoimmune disorder, anything nervous system related, go back and re-listen to that and think about some things you can apply. It doesn't have to be surfing, but how can you take information that you are going to learn in this interview? Yeah, there's really, yeah, there's a lot of ways to produce yeah. produce flow. Yeah, um, that, you don't have to use surfing for it. Yeah, yeah, which is what I wanted to get to. So let's talk about some ways to get into flow state and produce flow because it's both easier and harder than we think in a lot of ways. So what would, if you were instructing us like how to get into a flow state more often, what do we do? Okay. So I want to start before we even get to flow, flow is peak performance, but to get into the peak performance realm, there are six things and they're called the, I call them the positive psychology basics. Positive psychology has spent about 30 years figuring out how to get people ready to perform at their best, not really doing the peak performance work, but just in the ring. And I think these are foundational. And it's just worth going, covering them. I'm sure your listeners are probably familiar with a lot of these. These are going to sound familiar. Hopefully it'll be in a slightly different context than you've heard before. So there are, there's a physical side to this equation and a mental side of the equation. On the physical side, flow is a high energy state. So you ha- it, it has certain energetic requirements. And to maintain the levels of physical energy that we need for flow, the research is really clear. There are three things that matter. One, seven, eight hours of sleep a night. You just have to sleep seven, eight hours a night. There's not, I know there's a whole bunch of fancy people in the biohacking community who say, <laughs> oh, you can do this and do that. They're lying. They're I agree. Lying. I agree They're with just you. Lying. There's I like so the research do. is overwhelming seven, eight hours. I don't a night even need research. Sleep. It's my own life. Yeah, I get eight yeah, hours it, of sleep. I'm a different person. It, well, I mean, here's the thing I always tell people. I said, if you don't believe me, go, there's all kinds of cognitive tests online. Pick one, take it after six hours of sleep. And then take it after eight hours of sleep and see the difference. You will never again have this argument. Like your IQ drops so many points. Your emotional resonance drops so many points. Everything just crashes. So seven, eight hours of sleep a night, one. Two, hydration, nutrition. I'm not going to go into detail here because there is everybody's individual when it comes to, well, hydration, drink lots of water, right? That's, That's that. And, you know, put a pinch of salt in or drink it with electrolytes. Um, if you can. And nutrition, there's no one diet that works for everybody. There just isn't. Um, everybody's individual, everything's different. And the diet that works for you today is probably not going to the diet that's going to work for you two years from now because our metabolism changes over time. So hydration, nutrition matter because we need energy for peak performance. Eat well, drink lots of water. End of story. Finally, on the physical side, and I, I think your audience is going is to resonate with this. People talk about this. They rarely talk about this as a physical energy requirement, and it's really important. Social support. Social support, especially now. Research is pretty clear. We need a couple hours of, of really high-quality social support a week to really maximize this. And why, So why is this on the energy side? Why is this on the physical side? Part of it is obvious to everybody. Everybody knows you've gotten in a fight with your husband, your wife, your spouse, your girlfriend, your boss, your son, your daughter, your whatever, best friend. How do you feel at work the next day? How much energy are you bringing, right? We know, we feel the penalty, right? But what we don't realize is that penalty exists on a moment-by-moment basis. So whenever the, we encounter a problem in the world, the brain wants to make a very quick determination. What it says, is this thing a threat or a challenge, right? If it's a threat, oh shit, you got to panic. You need a bunch of stress hormones and a whole bunch of changes. If it's a challenge, we're going to do different things. When your brain makes that assessment, it looks at a number of different things. One, it looks at energy and sleep. So that matters on moment to moment basis, but it also looks at social networks. Basically, when you are faced with a challenge, your brain goes, well, are you alone when you solve this problem? Or do you have posse around you? Do you have friends to help you challenge? Or even if you're alone solving the challenge, are there people who love you who will pick you up should you fail? 
And this is on a moment-by-moment basis, and it determines our energy level and our stress levels. So really foundational stuff, that's on the physical side of the equation. Now, here's a little bit of ways to think about this. Under normal conditions, not COVID conditions, basically, under normal real-world conditions, if things are going really well in your life, you can probably screw one of these up a day and still drop into flow. Still, right? You don't want to try to do this every day. Like you're not going to be able to do it two or three days in a row, right? You'll pay the cost eventually, but you could screw one of these up a day and still perform at your best during times of crisis. When we are running hot, when there's a lot of anxiety, when there's a lot of fear and uncertainty, you don't get to skip on any of this, right? You really want to double down on these things because they're going to help you determine whether or not you treat life's problems as challenges or threats. And that's a lot of the ballgame. So that's the physical side, mental side of the equation. There are uh, similarly three things. And when I say the mental side of the equation, it's really simple. Anxiety blocks peak performance a little bit, a tiny little bit, right? When you can't tell, is this anxiety? Is this excitement? I can't quite tell. That's fine. You prime the brain for learning. You prime focus. You're actually priming flow. That's awesome. Too much anxiety put neurobiologically too much norepinephrine and cortisol you're going to screw everything up. You'll never even be able to get into the discussion for peak performance. You'll never be able to drop into flow. So what do we do to tune up our, the mental, what's mental hygiene? There are three practices here that are the most effective at managing anxiety, a daily gratitude practice. This is write down three things you're grateful for and turn one of them into a paragraph or write down 10 things you're grateful for. The biggest point is when you're turning into a paragraph or writing down the 10 things you're grateful for, you got to feel the gratitude. You actually have to feel the somatic address of the gratitude. And I know, um, Christine, you are a little more spiritually inclined, but for those people out there who are like me and are really science inclined and they hear gratitude and think, oh, this is some woo-woo crazy practice, why would I do this? Let me talk about the science of gratitude a little bit because maybe there's all kinds of spiritual reasons you want to be grateful, but there are really, really foundational science reasons why you want to be grateful. We do a lot of work with Dr. Glenn Fox. He's a neuroscientist at USC. He's the world's leading expert on the neurobiology of gratitude. One, we, fit, we found people with uh, regular gratitude practices get more flow. So if you want more flow in your life, there's a correlation between gratitude and flow. Two, here's the big deal. Your brain is hardwired to look for danger all the time, right? We evolved in an environment um, where threats were were of the crisis variety, and we will always scan the present environment for danger. Fear uh, and the amygdala, which governs fear and threat detection, is one of the first filters all information encounters in the brain. And on average, we will take in nine negative bits of information for every positive bit that gets through. That's what psychologists call the negativity bias. That's the negativity bias in, in bit rate. Now, we don't take in a whole lot of information per second. We process it 11 million bits of information a second. Consciousness, depending on whose numbers you go by, is somewhere between like 200 and 2,000 bits of information. So we don't live in a very big world in terms of what we can pay attention to at any one time. And things like optimism and confidence, and these things have really deep impacts on peak performance. And novelty, which is when you're not noticing things that you're scared of, you often are noticing things that are novel, is the foundational ingredient in creativity. So you really, you want to tip this bias. So when you, with a regular gratitude practice, you will tip it. You'll start taking in six negative bits for every one positive bit that gets through or five negative bits tilts it in your favor. That's a huge deal when it comes to controlling anxiety. You're literally seeing three or four less scary things a second that you can wig out on. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I remember one time I was having a panic attack on an airplane and I was new to panic attacks. So I was, they were even more scary because I didn't know what was happening. I thought I was dying. And I just started writing down things I was grateful for. I spent two hours on the plane, just writing the gratitude list and it completely took away my anxiety. So I, I know firsthand the gratitude other, yeah, works other, for anxiety. Other thing worth pointing out, Gratitude works where affirmations don't. Um, and the reason is this. We all know this. We got a built-in bullshit detector. 
right? The brain knows when you're lying to it. And so if you're looking in the mirror and going, I am a millionaire, I'm a millionaire, I'm a millionaire. And you're, you work at Walmart, your brain is going, shut the fuck up. You work at Walmart, man. What are you talking about? And it's massively demotivating and stressful. So gratitude, you're literally saying, I am happy and grateful that I got out of bed this morning and I'm healthy and my legs work. And those things are true. So your brain goes, oh, look at all these good things. You must be safer. You must be more safer than I normal. That's why you tilt the negativity bias a little bit. That's where it comes from. There's also a priming effect, right? You're priming the brain to look for other things to be grateful for, other things that are going well in your life. So it ends up making a little more optimistic as well. So gratitude, super important. Or 11 to 20 minutes of breath work and mindfulness. And when you're doing mindfulness meditation, these practices for nervous system regulation, all you need is about 11 minutes a day to get a, a, that separation between emotion and feeling, to start you know, becoming a little less reactive, a little less fearful. Um, so it's really a small practice. Or third choice, 20 to 40 minutes of exercise a day. And when you're exercising to take control of your nervous system, you're exercise, you're looking for something known as exercise-induced transient hypofrontality. So a fancy way of saying, everybody knows this, you go for a walk, you go to the gym, you do whatever, you work out for about 20, 30 minutes, it gets very quiet upstairs in your head. It feels like you're suddenly too tired to think, right? Um, in a sense, you are. What that is, is nitric oxide. Same gas as signaling oil shows up at the front end of a flow state, is showing up then. You're also like, you'll know it because your lungs expand. Suddenly you, you feel like your lungs have opened up a little bit. That's another sign this has taken place. So normal conditions, one of, of these three a day is all you need. You don't have to do all three every day. You've just got to keep your nervous system in check. And one a day is often fine in times of crisis, uncertainty, et cetera, two or three a day. That's how it works. So these are the peak performance basics. These six things, right? And you get your pick on the on the, on the anxiety manicuring side. You get, sort of don't really get your pick on the energy side, but you you can have a bad day every now and again, and and sort of deal with it. But you need these things to sort of get into the game. And I think it, it's it's worth pointing that out. No, thank you. This is I love these concrete steps, and these are doable. Everybody, Stephen's not saying you have to sit for two hours a day and meditate or exercise like you're an athlete or any of those things. These are easy, doable things. And I, I still am wondering if there are some people that are going, well, you know, I could do all that, but I'm just not wired for peak performance. That's just not me. Is that true? Are people, are there some people that so, just can't be a peak performer? Yeah. So not true at all, but let, let's, okay. So one, we're, we still have to talk about how to get people into flow because we haven't actually gone oh, yes. there. But, <laughs> we will. But, but let, let's talk about this first. When I say peak performance, let's talk about what the hell I mean. Peak performance is nothing more or less than getting our biology to work for us rather than against us. I have a book that just came out called The Art of Impossible. This is a book that right, lessons learned from people who've accomplished like those action adventure sport athletes, what I call capital I impossible, right? That which has never been done. It is meant, meant to be utilized by anybody interested in small I, lowercase I impossible. That's all the stuff we think is impossible for ourselves. This, you know, I'll give you a simple example. I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. I wanted to be a writer. I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio in the seventies when it was a blue collar working class steel mill town. I didn't know any writers. I didn't know how you became a writer. It was like I woke up, looked at my parents and said, mom, dad, when I grow up, I want to be an elf, right? I mean, I had no idea how you did this. There's a small eye impossible, meaning there's no clear path between where you are now and where you want to go. And statistically, not great odds of success. But there's a lot of small eye impossibles that really matter to all of us. Rising out of poverty is a small eye impossible. Overcoming trauma it's a small eye, impossible. So is becoming world-class at anything you do. Becoming a successful entrepreneur is a small eye, impossible. Having a successful marriage, as far as I'm concerned, is a small eye, impossible. Mm -hmm. Maybe mm -hmm. a capital eye, impossible, but definitely a small <laughs> eye, impossible. And I think I'd like to point this out. For every reason, peak performance, and for me, and I'm not even into the small eye, impossible, 
Okay, fair enough. But I think the first small lie impossible that every single one of us, I would guess, has found a way to solve at some point is you're 10, 11, 12 years old and suddenly realize that you're attracted to other people and you want that first kiss or that first date or a relationship or to hold somebody's hand or whatever and you have no idea how the hell to get that thing. I would have given you my left arm at age 11 for a first kiss probably, right? Like I had no idea how to do that and I would have given you my arm for it. The final point I want to make is let's say you're not even interested in small lie impossible. Let's say you're listening to this and you're like, dude, I'm just freaking trying to get through Monday. Cool. Because guess what? The toolkit is the same. The toolkit that you would utilize to go after capital lie impossible is the same. That you would utilize to go after small lie impossible is the same. You would use to be a little more productive or creative at work, maybe to learn a little faster than normal to be a little happier, more content, more well-being, meaning of life and satisfaction, same blueprint. They're all the same system because it's our biology. And that's the other point is our biology was, it's a limited set of things that you have to do um, to actually, for peak performance, at the end of Art Impossible, right? There's some onboarding practices and a bunch of stuff like that that we could talk about. But in the last chapter, when you break it down, it's about six things to do every day and seven things to do every week. And some of the things you do every day are the stuff I just talked about, right? You have to have five minutes for a gratitude practice or 11 minutes for a mindfulness practice. And a bunch of the other stuff you have to do every day are stuff you're already doing. And I'm just going to tilt how you're doing it and how you approach it and maybe a little bit of the time you spend on it. But when I tell you anybody can do this stuff, anybody can do this stuff. I also want to finally say, this is the thing that I think I've learned 30 years of studying this stuff in the world. And I have, I have probably been in the room when impossible became possible more than probably ever, any other human being currently alive. Cause it was my beat as a, as a journalist for so many years. And I've met extraordinary people who have done extraordinary things. But the point I want to make is none of these people started out extraordinary. They all start out just like you and me. They, get to extraordinary through the proper application of essentially this biology because there's no other way to get there. This is just how the system is designed to work. And when you get it to work for you, when you do these things right, the whole point is you get farther, faster with so much less effort. That's the good news, right? That's the whole point. Like, if you are less anxious, for example, if you're using one of these kind of ways to tune up your nervous system, you get so much benefit. It brings, you know, it, it, like mindfulness, this simple tool, you're training up focus, you're training up emotional regulation, you're training up resilience and grit, et cetera. It's an amazing, amazing, simple thing that you're doing that having a huge impact. Mm -hmm. And I love this too, because I, I know, especially with my audience, who's very into personal development and coaching and often therapy, they can get stuck in trying to get rid of something, trying to get rid of my insecurity, trying to get rid of my anxiety, trying to get rid of my sabotaging behaviors. Yeah, let's and, talk about let's talk about yeah. a couple of things here in this one. Like everybody I know in the world is a peak performer. Everybody, self-included, is running from something just as fast as you're running towards something. Because they need that double motive. You don't get to someplace worth going without all the motivation you can possibly get. And running away from something, that's phenomenally good motivation. And you, you don't have to, we deal with this all the time. I mean, I'm, there, there are traumatic, there's real trauma, and then there's just life. You don't, if, if, if life is standing between you and what you want, you don't have to, you don't have to solve it all at once. A lot of this stuff gets solved along the way. Let me put it to you this way. We, this is easier if I, I talk for a little while about uh, motivation and the biology of peak performance a little bit more. But the point of the art and possible is that we are all capable of so much more than we know. But human, right, human potential is invisible. We only figure out what we're capable of by stretching our skills to the utmost and doing it again and again and again. And that's how we really find out. We go after small line possible, after small line possible, after small line possible. That's how we find out what we're capable of. And we are all hardwired for extraordinary, point one. And point two, we're built to go big. That's what flow is, right? But the, the, the 
there's a flip side to this equation. Not going big is bad for us. And let me drill down on this. Abraham Maslow, a psychologist, said it really well. He said, whatever a human being or whatever a person can be, they must be. We are designed to rise to our full potential. We are designed to rise to our full capability. Let me, uh, let me give you an, let me tell you what I mean by this. There are eight major causes of, okay, I got to back up and tell you there are five major intrinsic motivators. And if you're really interested in peak performance, you need to learn to cultivate them all and get them all pointed in the same direction. Those motivators are going to be very familiar to everybody listening. Curiosity, passion, purpose, autonomy, which is the freedom to pursue your purpose and mastery, the skills to pursue that purpose. Well, those are our big five intrinsic motivators. Okay. And if you're interested in peak performance, you need to sort of learn to cultivate and align and stack and utilize all of them, et cetera, et cetera. So there are eight major causes of anxiety and depression. A lot of, if you're, if people are listening and they're, they're feeling stuck and they just, I can't get out of my own way. I'm dealing with anxiety. I'm dealing with depression. Cool. Of the eight major causes of anxiety and depression, and as you probably are well aware, anxiety and depression are now at epidemic levels, right? One out of 10 adults going to deal with this over the course of the next year, largest drain on public health dollars, and we're failing. Somebody kills themselves once every 12 seconds, right? It's a freaking global disaster. And if you look at the eight major causes of anxiety and depression, two of them get a ton of attention. One is genetics. Yeah, my genetics are screwed up. I can't make enough serotonin, so I'm depressed. The other is trauma. This horrible thing happened to me, and I can't get past it, right? And yet, if you look at the data, neither of those statements are true. As a general rule, we know this, by the way, genetics alone will never lead to depression. It's only 50% of the variables. The other 50% is how you are living your life. So if, uh, genetics alone is not the story. And trauma, if you look at the data, the vast, vast, vast majority of the time, trauma does not lead to post-traumatic stress disorder. It leads to post-traumatic growth. This is that famous Hemingway quote, right? The world breaks everyone, and afterwards, many are stronger with broken places. But emphasis on many. Very rarely does trauma lead to post-traumatic stress disorder. It leads to growth. So what are the other six major causes of depression that are really killing us? They're things like Lack of meaningful work. The number one cause of depression in the world is lack of meaningful work. What does that mean under the hood? It means work that is I'm not curious about, that is not aligned with my core passion, that is not aligned with my values or my purpose, that I don't have the autonomy, the freedom to pursue in the way I want to pursue it, that does not afford me the opportunity for skills and knowledge mastery, and to boot, it doesn't produce flow. The system is designed to go, it's designed to work in a specific way, and it's designed for us to go big, to rise to our full capability, not going big is bad for us. And the other five causes of depression, by the way, are, are more of the same. We're built to go big. So for anybody who's listening and saying, no, this doesn't apply to me, not only are you wrong, this kind of thinking actually leads really bad places in the end. Hmm. So for those people that may be thinking of it, maybe thinking, oh, this doesn't apply to me. I can't do it. I mean, I, I was on antidepressants from 11 till 30. And what got me, one of the things that got me off of them were everything that you're talking about here, becoming curious, becoming passionate, adding those physical and mental things in, and, and also really believing that I could do it and erasing a lot of, a lot of that programming. So for people that may still have resistance and may think, okay, I may not be able to do this, what are some of those things they can do to start to get into that flow right, so state? Let, yeah, let's start with flow. And let's start with the most, this is, so this is the single, I, I hate, if people come to me and they're like, dude, what are the three things I can do Monday right. morning? I want to <laughs> kill, I want to kill people. Cause I'm like, like, if I could do that, I, you know, it'd be great. It'd be awesome for you. I'd love to do that for you, but it just doesn't work that way. But there is one thing that everybody should do. And so in flow research, there is something known as a primary flow activity. Everybody has one of these. This is that thing that you've done throughout your life, often more as a kid than an adult, that just dropped you into the zone almost automatically, right? For you, Christine, you, you said it, it, it's coaching and, and public speaking mm -hmm, and that mm -hmm. sort of stuff for you now. For some people, it was riding horseback or, or going for walks in nature 
or um, walking their dog, or for me, it was skiing, riding a skateboard, surfing, dancing to hip hop, dancing salsa. I don't care. This list goes on and on and on. Everybody has one of these things. And um, if you are still wondering what's my primary flow activity, because flow massively amplifies learning and memory, we tend to remember experiences that happen in flow states. So literally audit happy memories, ages, you know, zero to five, five to 10, 10 to 15, 15 to 20, 20 to 25, et cetera, et cetera. Look for commonalities. You're probably going to find flow states. My point is one of the cool things about flow is, or one of the bad things about life, I guess, is that as we get older and more quote unquote responsible, we have families, we have jobs, we want to be more productive at work kind of thing. We put down our primary flow activities, right? We, we put away childish things for adult responsibility. It's a freaking disaster. And here's why. So one, Flow is a focusing skill. In the same way that meditation and mindfulness are focusing skills, it's a different kind of focus, but it's the same in that practice makes perfect. To put it simply, the more flow you get, the more flow you get. Flow may be elusive at work or it may be elusive at home, but in your primary flow activity, it's not elusive. So simply by and drop into flow, it means that Tuesday through Friday when I'm trying to write my book, I have an easier chance of dropping into flow, point A. Point B, as we talked about at the beginning of this, when we move into flow, there's a global release of nitric oxide. The nervous system gets reset. So since so many of us are just hypervigilant in today's world, always seeing threats really running hot, this calms us down. Here's the super bonus. When... Um, Flow amplifies a ton of stuff, including well-being, meaning, purpose, life satisfaction, all those, all those really important metrics. In fact, when, when we do studies of people who score off the charts for overall well-being and life satisfaction, they're always, always, always the people with mo most flow in their lives. This is, in fact, one of the most well-established facts in psychology. It's positive psychologists talk about three levels of happiness that are available to us, and levels two and three, the best we get to feel on this planet, both have flow. In, literally in the definition flow is how we are happy how we get meaning how we get purpose how we get fulfillment it's part of the equation so even if you're not interested in peak performance i think everybody is interested in enjoying their life and flow is fundamental to it so we reset the nervous system we get more focus we get more training for flow and the heightened joy and ecstasy and calm etc cetera, etc cetera, that shows up in flow flow is a often about a 90 minute experience. It varies and it can go up and down. And there's, um, Alan, uh, Luke's who just founded big brothers, big sisters back in the nineties, discovered an altruism based flow state known as helper's high. Um, and helper's high will outlast, will last a day, maybe two. So, um, nobody's really exactly certain how long flow lasts, but what we know is that that heightened feeling of motivation and well-being and satisfaction will outlast the flow state by a day, maybe two. Bonus, creativity. All aspects of creative problem solving also spike in flow. Depending on whose numbers you're going by, it's 400 to 700%. It's a massive uptick. Um, and I can talk about why and where that comes from if you care about the neuroscience. But the point is, this is not also my work. This is uh, Teresa Mabale's work at Harvard. But she figured out that that heightened creativity will outlast the flow state by a day, maybe two. So, by doubling down on our primary flow activity, massive boosts in motivation, in happiness, in creativity, more training for flow, and you're calming the nervous system down. This is a great multi-tool solution. Um, and here's the thing that's super important, and especially because, as you told me in the beginning, a lot of you listeners are women, and women are especially guilty of what I'm about to now say. If you're going to double down on your primary flow activity, you can't feel guilty about it. Mm -hmm. It will just be, <laughs> right? Like, it's no good. If you're going to feel anxious about the fact that you're, oh, I'm taking time away from my kids and I, I, I don't deserve to go surfing, right? All that stuff, you're defeating the entire purpose. First of all, that extra anxiety is going to block flow. So you won't, it won't be your primary flow activity. And second of all, it's going to ruin everything on the back end that you're doing this for. Thus, the point have your conversations ahead of time. 
Flow amplifies productivity, huge amplification of productivity. The end result of more flow in your life is you get more done with a lot less time. And probably enjoy so, doing it a lot more too. And enjoy doing it a hell of a lot more. So what you're doing is you're, yes, you're taking time away from your job and your family and whatever, but talk to your spouses and your bosses and your coworkers, et cetera. Tell them what you're doing, tell them why you're doing it and tell them that you're going to end up being more productive and you'll have more time for them in the long run. You end up winning back time this way, not losing it. And you're so much happier and healthier and healthier. healthier. I want to circle back to creativity because one of the things that you talk about is that creativity isn't just this right brain thing. And you debunk this myth that when you're in right brain, you're in your creativity. And when you're left brain, you're in your logical mind. You talk about how creativity can be rational and logical as well. Can you just teach us a little bit more about creativity and, and bust some of the myths we ha- misconceptions we have about creativity? Creativity is a process, first of all. When psychologists really take apart creativity, it's a 16-step process broken into four categories that start with things like problem identification, idea generation, all the way through pattern recognition, you know, idea execution, et cetera, et cetera. Um, second of all, as you pointed out, there is no such thing as a more creative side of the brain or a less creative side of the brain. Um, the right brain is actually a little bit better at seeing the forest, whereas the left brain sees the trees. That does tend to be one of the differences. Um, and there are um, a couple of sex differences between the brain, between the sides of the brain as well. Um, but as a general rule, you can be uh, creative, you can be logically creative, and you can be um, or creatively logical. And it's a whole, you need the whole brain to be creative. Um, that's sort of one of the things that's going on in creativity is it's really utilizing most of the brain for creative problem solving. There's no right brain, left brain, and creativity is much more of a state of consciousness than a set of skills, which is also kind of worth understanding. It is a way of thinking about things much less than things you're actually doing. That you're not really going to access when you're stressed out and sleep deprived and your nervous system's frazzled. Mm -hmm. So here, here, so the anterior cingulate cortex is this favorite region of the brain. And it's a region that does a lot of cool things, very important for flow, but really important for creative uh, decision-making. And so the anterior cingulate cortex, the more anxiety in the system, the more norepinephrine, the more cortisol in our system, the more logical and linear the anterior cingulate cortex is, the less likely it is to find far-flung creative solutions. And we understand this. We know this. The more anxious you are, the brain wants to simplify problems for us. And the extreme example is fight or flight. When there's a threat to your life in front of you, your brain says, okay, there's a big problem. I'm only going to give you three choices. You can fight, you can flee, or you can freeze. Reduces it completely to three choices, right? A little anxiety does the same thing. It Meaning the more anxiety in our system, the more logical and linear we get, the fewer choices, the less creative. The ACC if you want to train up creativity, one of the best things you can do is be in a good mood. Because when you're in a good mood, the brain goes, oh, you feel safe, you feel secure. I have the luxury to go hunting for far-flung associations between ideas. I don't have to panic and solve this problem immediately. So this is, by the way, one of the reasons flow, that heightened creativity outlasts the flow state by a day, maybe two. Flow feels so good that we stay calm. And the brain can be creative. Yeah. And we can, we, solutions just arise rather than having to figure it out, which is what I hear so many people say, I have to figure this out. I have to figure it out. I have to figure out what to do with my life. It's like, well, most of your best ideas, most inspiration doesn't come from figuring it out. It just happens. It just drops in. It's just something that you discover because you're curious. Well, it drops in for a reason though. And it's worth talking about this is we're talking about why you don't have to do what you have to do, but there are things that you do have to do. I'll give you, okay. So insight, we were talking about triggering flow and we wanted to get back to that. And we've been talking about creativity and I wanted to make the point I just wanted to make. So I'm going to do all three at once. All right. So flow states have triggers. These are preconditions that lead to more flow and uh, flow follows focus. It shows up with all our attention in the right here, right now. That's what all the triggers do. They drive attention to the present moment. 
There are about 22 known triggers. There's probably way more, but that's what we know so far. There are uh, 12 for individual flow, what will drive me into flow. And then there's a shared collective version of flow state. This is group flow. This could be interpersonal flow, two people talking. So when you sit down with your best friend, you get so lost in the conversation, the whole afternoon disappears, right? That's interpersonal flow. Um, or this could go all the way up to like a great brainstorming session where ideas are ping-ponging off the wall or a fourth quarter comeback in sports. Those are all examples of group flow. There's about 10 group flow triggers. Mm. Mm. All of them, as I said, drive focus in the present moment. Usually they do this by producing the neurochemicals norepinephrine or dopamine. These are focusing chemicals. All right, that's background. One of the most powerful flows triggers is insight or creativity. When you link ideas together, when you detect a pattern, you get a little bit of dopamine. And everybody listening knows this. You've had this experience. If you've ever done a crossword puzzle or played Sudoku, right? When you get an answer correct, you get that little rush of pleasure. That's dopamine. So if you want more creativity in your life or if you want to solve problems, your brain has a built-in pattern recognition system. That's what it does. Your brain at a neuron by neuron level is built to link like with like. That's what brains do and brains do this automatically. The problem is if you want a bunch of creative flow states in your life, you have to feed the pattern recognition system. This is the same thing I was going to say about what you said. You may not have to make the decision. You said it's just going to arise. It's going to arise because your pattern recognition system is going to do the work for you, but you have to feed it the proper ammunition. So in general, one of the things that we do with our clients is we have them read 25 to 50 pages a day in a about a subject that they're super curious about, but it's outside their core discipline. It's outside the work they do for a living. And here's why it's really important that it's far away from you. We specialize in the modern world. And the older we get, the more we specialize. That's what the research says over and over and over again. And when you specialize, you're learning things that are very closely related to one another. And when they're closely related, while well, your brain can link them together, it's not very hard. So you don't get a lot of dopamine for doing it. And what you want is a lot of dopamine. Your brain will naturally find connections between any incoming information you give it and older ideas because that's what brains do. But if you give it, if you start reading on a daily basis outside your core interest, but about stuff that you're curious about, your brain is going to start linking it back to stuff you already know. This is going to create creativity. It's going to create innovation. It's going to create insight. You're feeding the pattern recognition system and it's going to create way more flow. But if you don't nurture your pattern recognition system, it can't do its job. Yeah. Oh, you know, and as you're, as you've been talking this whole time, Stephen, I just really want to acknowledge you for your work because I think it's always been important, the work that you're doing and now even more important because we seem to be living in a time when people are very reactive the opposite of flow state, just reactive, reactive, reactive to things. And the work that you've done and the tools that you're giving us is helping us move more into being a peak performer, more into that flow state so that we can stop being reactive and actually get through this time and solve some of the problems we're facing from a, a healthier state in, in, my, in mind and body. So thank you so much for your work. And like I said, it's especially relevant now. Thank you. That was mm. nice of you to say. No, it's, it's, it's true. It's true. Cause I just, you know, especially this past year, I've had so many people reach out. What can I do? I'm so triggered. I'm so overstimulated. So many people's nervous system from all the information in the news are just, are, are just fried right now. So you're giving us some concrete ways to one, go over, go after those small I impossibles, which people can learn to do in, in Stephen's new book, the art of the impossible, which I'm 75% through. And it's really, really good and gives you I love how you talk to the, the rational side of us, the science sort of us, side of us, and you motivate us to really go after those things and, and show us with research that we all can do it, that you don't have to be, I think a lot of the times when people think peak performer, they do think top athlete or genius or big CEO of a company. And what you're teaching us is that we all can be peak performers in our own life. Yeah. It's not reserved for the special or elite. It's, it's really not reserved for the special or the elite. Um, and that's, I mean, that's what you learn on the inside, mm. right? Like that's what I learned from the action sport athletes. Cause I got to tell you, it is, it's one thing when you see like, you know, you look on a screen, you see a skier 
do something that looks impossible or a snowboarder or a surfer or something like that. It's quite another when like you go out to the bar on Friday night and you go drinking with somebody and you're just like 22 year olds in a bar getting drunk on a Friday night. And then you go out Saturday morning into the mountains and that person does something that for all of recorded history has never been done before. Mm. Right. Mm. These are like the amount of humanness you find on the inside of the extraordinary is probably the only thing that's really extraordinary. Mm. I love that. Last question for the parents and perhaps the teachers that are listening, how can they really teach and nurture kids to be peak performers and get into flow state? Okay. I try very, very hard to stay in my lane. (laughs) Um, I do. Let me first say, I do not have children. I have experts on my staff who have children and who like children. This is not my expertise. I am probably not the guy you want to talk to about this. I will say there's tremendous, fact, uh, a textbook on flow and education came out last year. So there's so much information on flow and education. Um, it's overwhelming. And, and, it, and it's like crazy stuff. Like I'll give you a simple example. There was a really cool study on high school kids and they looked at their secondary activity. So schools, their primary activity, secondary activity is maybe they played football or were a cheerleader or were in debate club or played tuba in the marching band. The chances of, uh, the, they were trying to measure grit. They were looking for what's the best predictor of this student will still be doing the secondary activity when they graduate as seniors four years later, right? So they're still playing the tuba. They're still in marching band. They're still playing football, whatever it is. Take your pick. The the only thing that mattered is the amount of flow it was, the activity was producing their freshman year. That was the dominant indicator of grit. And we see this over and over and over again. One thing I do want to point out, if there's a lot of teachers listening, because this is uh, this is something that worth, is worth pointing out, and I think this is true for coaches. So there's pretty overwhelming evidence that says when teachers are in flow, students are not. Interesting. And the reason... The reason is this, one of the other, one of the flow's most important triggers is what's known as the challenge skills balance. We pay the most attention to the challenge at hand, the task at hand, what we're doing, the present, when the challenge slightly exceeds our skill set. So you want to be stretching, but not snapping. You don't want to be overwhelmed, but you can't be bored at all. You have to be at the edge of your skills. You're really pushing. You're outside your comfort zone a little bit. When teachers are outside the comfort zone, in flow doing this, they're usually talking about stuff that's at the cutting edge of their knowledge, stuff they're really fired up about. As a general rule, that's not where your students are. Your students are back at the beginning, just trying to learn the damn subject. And they don't want to know about the cutting edge. They want to know about what do I do first? What do I learn second? What do I learn third? So one thing to know, it's just because teachers in flow, not a guarantee that students are in flow. Hmm. Hmm. Well, I think that was a great answer to that question. And what I really got from this, if I, you know, we don't have kids, but if I did, I would one, learn how to generate flow state inside of me, model it for my kids, and then learn how to recognize it in my child and do whatever I can to nurture it and reinforce it. And Kids kids are developmentally flow prone. Mm, So they have a bunch of neurobiological reasons. They They can get into flow much more easily. And one thing so here's an interesting fact that comes out of the world of impossible, um, out of the, all the action sports stuff we started with. So there's this funny thing that started to happen in skateboarding of all places where you routinely see 12, 13, and 14 year old kids winning the X games, beating 30 year old athletes. And that's really weird. And one of the reasons is skateboarding is dangerous. It's really, really dangerous. And when you're in flow, you fall less performance goes up. So in skateboarding, they started coaching kids in kind of flow, some of the mental stuff that surrounds flow, often without even knowing that they were sort of really doing flow work, but they were, they started doing this a lot earlier than a lot of the other action sports. And you see it. It's why you see kids, 13 year olds winning the X games when it doesn't like that shouldn't actually be possible, but it's because they got, because the sport is so dangerous and, and, and you hit the ground so damn much when you're learning to skateboard. Um, they have to, it's sort of enforced kind of, uh, flow training and it worked. Wow. Oh my gosh. 
I could talk to you for hours. <laughs> I really want to respect your time. And I, there's so much that you gave my audience today. Thank you so much. Where can people go to get The Art of the Impossible and any other resources from you? For sure. Okay, I'm going to give you a bunch of stuff. First of all, The Art of Impossible is www.theartofimpossible.com. Um, if you want just more information on the work we do on Flow, you can find it at theflowresearchcollective.com. Or here's something for all your listeners. There are six major flow blockers, like things that stand between most people and, and, and more flow. And we just built a diagnostic. So if you go to www.flowblocker.com, it's a free diagnostic. It'll tell you what's standing between you and more flow and then give you a bunch of very practical, actionable steps to, to remove that obstacle. So flowblocker.com, flowresearchcollective.com, theartofimpossible.com. And if you want to know more about me, you're not sick of listening to me talk by this point, you can go to stephencotler.com. Awesome. And we'll link that up in the show notes. Stephen, thank you for your time. Thank you for your work. Thank you for giving us a really tangible way to get out of some feelings we're stuck in, like anxiety, depression, overwhelm, lack of self-confidence, all of that. You, This is just really... I mean, but let yeah. me also close with one thing. Yeah, please I'd do. I'd just like to point this out. It's hard here. I mean, it's hard for everybody flat out. So all that stuff you're stuck in, Trust me when I tell you that like all the extraordinary people I've studied, we're all, they were all stuck in that same stuff. They just started doing a bunch of other stuff because they set a big goal and they wanted it. And they started doing it despite themselves. Not, no, nobody I know waited till they were fixed to go after their goals. They made going after their goals how they got fixed. And by the way, the system is designed to work that way. Final thought, we don't live in reality. We live in a reality shaped by two things, our fears and our goals. That's the other half of the information that gets into our consciousness in every moment. It's, we either feel fear or we have, we're going after our goals. It's, a, it's, a, it's almost a binary. It's not quite in humans and most other mammals it is. Um, but literally like setting yourself a hard goal and going for it is one of the best ways you can fix what's broken. And I'm not an expert in how to fix what's broken. That's not the work we do. We do zero to Superman. A lot of other people are smarter about how to fix what's broken, but this is what the data shows. Mm. Mm. I love that. Thank you, Stephen. My pleasure. Thank you for your interest. Have a great day. <laughs>